Whatever comes out of these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? What is your suggestion, Master Jedi? These allegations are false. some point you nearly complete or completely complete your product your creation and then something happens that causes you to lose that or you realize it wasn't done the way you wanted and unfortunately i recorded this podcast here but something was off with my microphone and you could only hear one out of every three or four words so here we go recording it once again. It happens to the best of us, and thank you everyone for understanding. One thing that's nice about revisiting this subject that I have already talked about is that I'm aware of what particular points I want to bring back up and clarify with more sincerity, versus which ones were just kind of awkward tangents that didn't go anywhere, and I just don't want to explore further. So thank you for your patience with technical failings. Anyhow, let's dive into it. So the center point of this episode comes from a tweet I disagree with so strongly. And I'm not going to say who wrote this tweet. I'm not going to say when it came out because I don't want to give this person and their claim more buzz than it already has received. It's a take that is so bad, that's so weird, that I feel like it almost has to be intentional for the purpose of being ratioed to hell and get, you know, follows because, oh, this person's controversial because that's how people navigate the internet. The statement that it makes is that they cannot believe that science fiction or space, more specifically, I believe they said, cannot be a setting for horror. You cannot have horror in space in terms of films and a genre. That is so preposterously incorrect. Some of the scariest movies come from space. And as a setting, I mean. And the reason that works is because space itself is so inherently frightening. And that doesn't make things cheap. You know, the idea that, oh, space is a frightening setting, therefore I cannot put horror in there, because otherwise, you know, I'm ruining, you know, horror needs to be taking something that isn't scary and making it scary. Yes, it can do that if you want to do something like Chucky Child's Play thing, or, you know, let's go with the scary Marshmallow Man, like in Ghostbusters, if you want to go that route. But no, if something is scary, tap into your creative juices to create that. My favorite films that fall under the horror franchise, I mean, pardon me, the horror genre, which is not something I dabble in all too quickly, operate in the window of space. 
The other ones I like are the ones that operate in the ocean, something that's equally scary in its own way. You know, the idea that you can't breathe, that there's a feeling of nothingness, especially in space, but definitely in the big blue ocean, you know? They each have their own unique things that are threatening. And it's not cheap for a filmmaker or for a writer or a painter to tap into that location and make a frightening story out of it. Now, I could break this apart and look at some of the great horror stories that take place in space, not just in film, but in literature. If you want to go back to H.G. Wells, you know, if you want to look at the original Alien, if you want to see what is horrifying in its own right in 2001, A Space Odyssey, well, maybe not, you know, horror in the the slasher type genre we think of it is scary in its own regard. Um, But no, this podcast is dedicated to the turn of the millennium, so I want to focus on three movies that I think touch and explore space horror, so to say, uh, from a, you know, a late 1990s perspective, late 1990s, early 2000s. The movies we're going to be looking at today are Event Horizon, Alien Resurrection, and Pitch Black. Now, Event Horizon is the only one out of this list that, for me, lives in top four horror movies. The other two aren't necessarily that great. I just want to disclaim on that. And two, you can't really necessarily call them horror because there's more action elements involved. But I think there's some good elements of scariness, of otherworldliness, of things that give you the creepy Carlies. Plus, there are the jump scares, there are the slash moments, there are the gore. One other thing I want to throw out there is I am not a horror aficionado. I don't watch horror films all that much. I'm not someone who's super plugged into a lot of the main franchises of horror because, frankly, I prefer laughing. I prefer feeling happy. I prefer feeling sad than all of that rather than feeling afraid. That being said, there are some films that hit those notes that resonate with me, and I think it's those that touch into these different atmospheres of the ocean, as previously stated, when you think of a movie like Jaws, uh, which, even though it's dated, I think still holds up very, very well, or Space, which is what we're talking about here today. So what we're looking at the event years here, uh, the event horizon years here, is going from uh, 1997 with Event Horizon and Alien Resurrection up to 2000 in Pitch Black. So this is kind of exciting for me because... For most of the episodes I've covered in the Babble Bubble, I haven't really looked back prior to 1999. Uh, and especially, you know, that fit the original mold of what constituted the, the predecessor of this show, the full name of the show, C.O. Bibble's Babble Bubble, in which I looked at what I refer to as the prequels era of 1999 to 2005 when the Star Wars prequels were released. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to expand that to look at 95 to 2005, a 10-year window, and what that captured. And... We're now finally having a chance to look at the first half of that more thoroughly. Uh, another disclaimer I, I want to put out there before talking about these films and what makes them touch the horror franchise, the horror genre, uh, is that you know, given that how old I was when they came out, which would have respectively have been three years old, three years old, and six, I did not see any of these in theaters. It took a long time for me to get to see these films. Uh, I I was in high school by the time I finally got around to them, and 
you know, so by that point, uh, the oldest of these films would have been, oh heavens, 15 years old, perhaps, uh, 13, 14 years old, somewhere along that, and the newest of the films would have been 12 years old, and you know, compared to what else was out there at the time, there were certainly dated elements, and like, oh, this CGI looks very 90s right now, but I still think that the scariness and the eeriness is so well captured that that's what ages all three of them in a in a well way. And that's something that I feel like most that falls under the space genre when it comes to the horror elements at age as well. Space horror has the ability to age better than space action or space adventure because you're looking at settings where there, there's the element of the unknown. You're not really sure where the big bad villain is and because of that you don't constantly have let's throw in cgi spaceships and let's throw in cgi you know laser bolts coming out where there's you know prolonged periods of just fear and suspense building up and then when they do show up you kind of go okay yeah this does look a bit dated but you know it's the emotions of the people are what carry through because what makes a good horror movie or a horror story is the character's feeling the characters feel and i think that's what's what's done well in these movies it's it's kind of funny i think that they kind of get i mean event horizon i says light years above the other two but we'll we'll go ahead and and use that to transition to talk about it there so event horizon as i said is one of my four favorite horror films uh so this is for those of you who haven't seen it i will not spoil much cuz this is one that i think requires a viewing the other two not so much but i think everybody who feels like they can stomach the genre deserves to watch this uh, it stars uh, lawrence fishborne uh, this of course is very much a highlight high period of his career may even dedicate an episode to his career at this point that we have this film in 1997 and of course uh, the matrix comes out two years later uh he plays Morpheus. We have peak 90s Sam Neill. So think about him being in uh, the Jurassic Park movies around this time, the first and the third. Uh, Kathleen Quinlan and Jolie Richardson. So it definitely has a drop after the, you know, the two male stars really carry it at that moment in terms of the billing. But, you know, the, the filmography of everyone else is, is nothing to snuff at. I mean, Kathleen Quinlan is a, you know, Golden Globe nominated actress and, uh, you know, Jolie Richardson continued to have more of a mid-late 2000s peak of sorts when she was on the show The Tudors or Nip Tuck on FX and and, and so forth. So, you know, they're, they're recognizable faces, even if you don't know the names necessarily. And then, of course, we get to see one of my favorite actors uh, from just in the entire, you know, genre space of science fiction it's a fantasy, it's a historical fiction with Jason Jason Isaacs. So this is, you know, Jason Isaacs right before he starts to to peak in the popular, you know, limelight. He he plays the medical doctor on the ship. And I think he works so well in this particular role. And this is just a few years before we see him in The Patriot, then as Lucius Malfoy and Harry Potter, and then everything else that stemmed from there up through most recently. Uh, the series Star Trek Discovery, uh, now on Paramount Plus, which I highly recommend. But why does this work? Well, for me, a good horror film, which, like I said, I'm not a 
I'm not a master of horror. I generally steer away from it. But for what, what peaks for me of, of, of a good horror environment is you need to kind of have this aspect of a crew. In this case, it is a literal crew, a crew of a ship, uh, the uh, the Lewis and Clark, which is going to rescue a ship that's, that's run into another dimension, the Event Horizon. Uh, but it, it hits on some of the notes that work successfully with Alien. And, you know, crew doesn't have to necessarily be crew as in, you know a gang that all report to one another, but just a grouping of characters who bring in their own unique things and who all have their unique roles to play. You know, this, of course, is parodied in the movie Cabin in the Woods, which came out in 2012. Uh, not not as, like, a, a crew of people, but in terms of, you know, oh, here are, in horror films, the tropes that each character hits a certain note, like the jock. You know, or here's, like, the sweet girl, and here's kind of the stoner. That's more in terms of, like, the teen horror film, like, uh, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, or Scream, or Friday the 13th, so on and so forth. And so it's nice to see that translated into roles on a ship. And so you do have, uh, you know, Lawrence Fishburne is the captain, the commanding officer of the Lewis and Clark, which is a nice preview of what science fiction fans will get to see two years later in 1999, as I mentioned with The Matrix, where he gets to play Morpheus as captain of uh, the Nostradamus. Uh, Sam Neill is, uh, he's the physicist, the engineer, he's, he's the doctor, um, a PhD doctor, I should say, who designed the ship that's in trouble. So this is kind of fitting that role of who's sort of the mysterious stranger. Uh, but in this case, it, what makes it so fascinating is the mysterious stranger is the main character who's being plugged into a group of people who seem to know each other a little uh, better plugged in. Then you have uh, Kathleen Quinlan plays a medical technician. You have uh, Julie Richardson plays you know the lieutenant, the communications and executive officer. Then you have a rescue tech and a chief engineer. And then the classic sort of pilot's thing. And uh, a few others. And then when they go to rescue the ship, the event horizon, the ship that they're headed to, that's when you start to meet, or at least in audio logs and various histories, other members of that crew. And you get to sort of see comparisons between the two of them. And as they wrestle with their own demons, and what makes it work so well is that you don't see like a monster in this film. It's just a madness that takes over. And how they react to this madness and what that leads them to do and how that leads them to act. The demons are the demons within of this crew coming to investigate and to save the day and only to realize the true terror that's there. And I think that just is phenomenal. I infinitesimally approve of this kind of scary storytelling over, like, here is a single monster villain type thing. You know, oh, here is, you know, some interdimensional spooky being. Or, you know, some crazed inmate. No, then they become their own villains as it evolves. And I think that's super neat. It also has one of uh, <laughs> just my favorite... This is in the opening of the film, so it's not a spoiler or anything necessarily, but one of my favorite stupid lines when it comes to wormholes and just kind of breaking the quantum barrier to travel, at which they say uh, Sam Neill's character tells the team, you know, trying to be all coy, he has a piece of paper and puts two dots on it. And he says, what's the shortest distance between two points? And one person says, well, that's obvious, and grabs a pencil and connects the two dots and says... 
a straight line. It goes incorrect, folds the paper in half. No distance at all because the two dots are touching each other. So you know what? A leading question, very, you know, stereotypical, like, I'm the academic who knows more than you, which also, once again, fits into this aspect of what does the crew bring to the table? What does the gang bring to the table? You know, this is something that even if you were to go from horror to camp mystery, you know, look at the crew of the Mystery Machine, Mystery Incorporated. It's like that's Velma who would do a leading question trying to trick them, be like, aha, that's what you would think, but in actuality, this is what you have to think because this is the truth. And seeing where that all lines up, it, it's kind of funny to look at these these films and be like, okay, you know, who fits what particular trope outside of like, this one's the doctor, this one's the engineer. You know, sticking with gang crew tropes that we think of. So who's the Shaggy? Who's the Fred? Who's the Vilma? Who's the Scooby? You know, it works so well when mystery is involved and a group of people are running into something that is unknown, something that has the element of scariness. Because Scooby-Doo, you know, is kind of scary in its own way. Um, going to the next film in this conversation uh, is Alien Resurrection. Uh, colloquially referred to by some fans as Alien 4, as it is the fourth entry in that franchise. Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, the first Alien falls under that same list as Jaws and Event Horizon as one of my favorite horror films, where Alien Resurrection is, uh, <laughs> is really not that great. You know, there are some people who really like it, and it's an upgrade over Alien 3. I, I do know some people who prefer Alien 3 over Alien Resurrection to each their own, but it's not that great of a film. I think, you know, when you look at review aggregate sites, which are just a pile of crap to begin with, because, you know, you're trying to take something subjective and make it seem objective, but just looking at that, about 50% of, you know, reviewers thought of it positively to some degree. So that's, you know, that's not too bad for this this genre, I think. You know, Cinema Score gives it somewhere on a B minus scale, so it's not as good as the first two. But it's like I said, it's generally better received than the third. So, what is it that that makes this a good horror film for space? You know, Mrs. Mister Mrs. Oh, you can't do horror in space. Well, once again, you have the crew aspect, which I talked about with Event Horizon, in the sense that you have, you know, the mechanic, the mercenary the first mate, the captain of the ship, the pilot, the commanding officer of the other ship, one of the scientists who may be morally ambiguous, so on and so forth, the surgeon, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, that hits upon that particular trope, but one thing that makes it stand out, you know, compared to other, you know, other movies, not just in this franchise, but in a number of franchises, horror or not, is the fact that you you bring back a deceased character by way of clone. And so, in this case, you have... Uh, so Sigourney Weaver, whose, whose character Ripley sacrificed herself at the end of Aliens 3, comes back in this one, Resurrection, uh, specifically as Ripley 8, uh, a clone um, uh, of the original with some alien DNA mixed in on there. And so... I touch on this because that moves from being like 
unknown scary to just creepy scary. Human cloning is something that I would say the vast majority of audiences are not comfortable with in real life. You know, when you think of something like Star Wars Attack of the Clones, Jango Fett is cloned to make millions of clone troopers, and a son Boba, of course. And that feels okay to us because it's done en masse. Plus, it's taking place in a galaxy far, far away, and there's a cartoonish element to it as a way. You know, we take that as a granted. But when you have the idea that here's cloning technology that's raw, that's in a future, our future, a human being future within the same galaxy as Earth, and let's do this one, and now we're throwing in foreign DNA involved in their well, that makes people start to be uncomfortable. The stomach starts to turn a bit. You know, especially when you realize this clone was created because they wanted to make the clone pregnant with an alien embryo. That thing gets grotesque. And that's the type of grotesque horror that some people love. It's not for me. I do not like any sort of body dysmorphia horror or any sort of stuff like that, like the fly or any, you know, woo, you know, too creepy. It makes me not want to shower because I just don't like facilities where I feel trapped and thinking that could happen, you know, and, but it, it's, it's unsettling. And, you know, that's a way that they're using science fiction to do something that's unsettling. You know, it's kind of like space voodoo. And, you know, voodoo is part of the, you know, oldest horror stories, at least in the American horror tradition, in terms of adopting sort of the concept of the zombie from West African lore that made it to Afro-Caribbean, uh, you know, the Afro-Caribbean cultural zeitgeist and passed along storytelling there and worked its way up, yada, 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 you know, bringing back from the dead, piecing together a monstrosity. But this monstrosity is the hero who is responsible for taking care of the monster that was born out of her. Uh, what sets this one nicely apart, too, that hits on a, a horror trope, or, or just a gang mystery trope, is that you have Winona Ryder in there, uh, which is a nice add of kind of the young the young child. Now, it's different than the youngish, younger child in Aliens 2, or otherwise just Aliens, uh, but just, you know, here's a younger person, you know, and the idea of someone who's more innocent, someone who's seeing, you know, the world through a different set of eyes, and how do the more grizzled heroes or the grizzled supporting cast you know interact with them uh, ripley being you know fascinating here because ripley's technically the youngest of them all as a clone but is of course an older person so yeah this movie is is kind of scary in its own right just based on premise alone add in the fact that you know the alien design which continues on through that franchise as they evolve it with variations of the xenomorph queen and those that are you know half human half alien in a way so on and so forth um making it look more and more vicious and beastly looking is horrifying on its own, let alone the suspense of where is it, where is it, oh my god, there it is, how do I react, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, this there's a great example, I just want to give a shout out, you know, because I've been giving some stuff to cast members, particularly in the last one, uh, Tom Woodruff Jr., he was uh, the special effects supervisor of that film, did a, a great job in terms of really capturing just the grotesqueness of of the aliens. And uh, he's gone on to do a, a great 
you know, career from there, um, you know, go, going forward. You know, pl- pl- both playing the lead alien in that, you know, in costume and, 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 and elsewhere, and then to making scary figures in future films. Yeah, you know, I mentioned Jurassic Park earlier and the fact that you, know, you look at Jurassic World, he was involved with that. Um, he was involved in uh, a number of more recent movies too, Godzilla, King of Monsters, Godzilla vs. Kong, helping sort of piece together what's that right feel, you know, from a special effects side. So that's really, you really have to applaud that role. What we see, you know, in the 90s with that type of film is what led the jumping point to the wonderful performances and executions by the teams and the talent behind all of Doug Jones's great roles with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, that's, of course, looking at Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Uh, or you, of course, have to look at Andy Serkis, seeing what he is able to achieve in playing uh, Gollum and Schmeagle in the uh, the Lord of the Rings franchise there uh, with motion capture. So motion capture meets costumes, meets how lighting can be done in a way to add a sense of how can I, I take something unnatural and make it fit into this natural world in a way that's horrifying, in a way that's grotesque, or a way that's sweet in a way. that It's humanizing if you're talking about the ju- the Doug Jones element. You know, once again, I'm going to keep promoting the show Star Trek Discovery, which is not horrifying in most sense, but kind of, you know, that Star Trek camp plus modern dollars to execute it. Uh, Doug Jones is in that, playing a wonderful alien uh, known as a Kelpian uh, as Saru. So there we go. Jason Isaacs uh, and, and Doug Jones dropping some Star Trek Discovery. And, and just again, just to highlight, Doug Jones is not any of these movies. This is just a linear follow through from Tom Woodruff Jr. as they vaguely fall in the same camp of creature creation. Uh, lastly, I just want to talk about the film Pitch Black. A lot of folks may not know this film simply as Pitch Black, but actually as the Chronicles of Riddick Pitch Black. It's the film that launched that franchise, the Chronicles of Riddick franchise. And what's fascinating about this movie is that when it came out, it wasn't terribly popular. Um... You know, it was it was kind of neat in the idea that let's try to hit on this Vin Diesel kick as Vin Diesel was in the process of becoming one of the biggest stars of the world in the early 2000s, you know, in terms of Triple X, the Fast and the Furious movies, so on and so forth. So here we have Riddick. Um, this is probably the least spacey of these, um, though space is involved, and I feel like it's worth mentioning when talking about the three of these. So what's happening here, once again, we sort of open with a spaceship, and that gives the whole crew element. And there are uh, there are passengers who are, uh, the passengers on the spaceship are, are, are some of them are, are either kind of criminal backgrounds or just kind of, you know, non-standard. The whole idea that let's get a hodgepodge of people all, all brought together and see how that react. Uh, and so the main criminal is this Richard B. Riddick. Uh, similar to Event Horizon in the Aliens franchise, this takes place in our immediate future. This is not like Star Wars, where it's a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago. This is in the future of mankind. And when I say immediate future, I mean, they don't. I don't think they give a date, but fast forward, you know, hundreds of years, but still it's within our understanding of galaxies and space and times. And these are human beings from the planet Earth, yada, yada, yada. Um, so in this, you know, Vin Diesel plays Riddick, who is a he's a prisoner who's being transported in a spacecraft to a space prison. Now the spaceship gets hit by some comic debris, and then the ship has to make a crash landing 
on a desert planet. And so immediately, going back to the whole crew and gang trope, you have to look at this whole business as, okay, you have those who work for the ship, the hunter, Gratzner, those who are responsible for transporting the prisoners or other people, and those who are the prisoners themselves, when the good guys and the bad guys have to team up to try to survive a horrifying situation. Will it work? Will it not? You just have to watch it to uh, to find out. It's um interesting, uh, just to give another character shout-out here, uh, and besides Vin Diesel, the truly talented Keith David is in this. And Keith David, if you do not know his face, you know his voice. This man has been in all sorts of things. If you are fans of Mass Effect, he is Captain Anderson. If you are fans of the Halo franchise, he is the Arbiter. He voiced one of the gargoyles from that show. He voiced Spawn, so on and so forth. He was in a season of Community. He is truly phenomenal. He has done all sorts of nature documentaries. You will know this man's voice the moment you see him. And so it's cool to see Keith David uh, thrust in this genre as well. Opposite Vin Diesel, uh, Keith David plays a, a Muslim preacher who's traveling to New Mecca, which is just, that's another reason why I love the space science fiction genre, the idea that you can create, you know, new blanks based on something that doesn't exist in our present world, but you say this could based on discovery. So let's have a new Mecca, you know, things along those lines of the idea of, you know, new New York. If you want to be, you know, not space, but space-focused and hardly horror, rather comedy, Futurama, for instance, you know, so on and so forth. So you can you have the opportunity to be real creative. Now, in this one, what is unique compared to the others, well, not necessarily unique, but you have a... Uh, you have a multitude of alien creatures that are attacking the survivors, and so this one definitely feels the most most action-oriented of it all, and they need to try to get off of this planet. So they are trying to find a way to escape. So it's interesting to see how everybody, all three of these films kind of line up and compare to one another, which goes to say the diversity of space horror is more than just saying space is scary, that you can take you know, the diversity of storytelling and throw it all there. So, you know, Event Horizon, let's go rescue a ship that's in trouble. Alien Resurrection, let's try to use very grotesque science to harvest this type of alien that we want to exploit at the expense of human beings who we consider less than because we're evil corporations or in this case here let's band together people from different backgrounds as they have to try to survive a horrible situation all of these are very stereotypical horror tropes that take place in space in sea on the ground in the air earth water air fire so on and so forth. It's the elements all together. Anyhow, I, I don't want to just do plot summaries of all these, so, you know, go watch them, especially Event Horizon, like I said. That's probably one of my favorite things in this particular genre. I, I wanted to end on something fun. So, I mentioned earlier Scooby-Doo. Now, these movies came out shortly before we get to see the two live-action Scooby-Doo films. Those two films do not take place in space. Those two films don't classify as horror. But those two films have very horrifying moments because there's real monsters in it. There's voodoo magic in the first one. There's fake monsters becoming real monsters in the second one. So what I want to try to do is I'm going to piece together the unreleased live-action Scooby-Doo 3. Scoobs in Space, 
a space horror film that captures the feeling of the early 2000s. We're going to keep the cast exactly the same. We've got Freddie Prince Jr. as Fred Jones. Sarah Jessica Parker as Daphne. Linda Cardinelli as Velma. Matthew Willard as Shaggy. Now let's say that the Mystery Incorporated folks, they have to go investigate a space station that's going around the moon. Now, you know, at this point, if we're saying it's Scooby-Doo 3, you know, and Scooby-Doo 1 and Scooby-Doo 2, these guys aren't teenagers, you know, they're full-grown adults. So they get, you know, drafted to say, let's go figure out what's going on with this space station that went around the moon that hasn't been communicating. Now NASA, but not actually NASA, but some fake space organization, because you see that NASA in space horror is rarely named because we want to think NASA are good guys. So generally, it's replaced by an evil corporation that has either supplemented NASA, supplanted, or is just doing its own independent thing. So we're going to call these guys Super Space because, you know, if it's Scooby, we're not getting too detailed with the names. But Super Space has a private space station that's gone dark. And they don't want to send real people over there. And by real people, I mean trained astronauts or trained investigators because they're afraid what the trained people may actually find happened in there. Plus, Mystery Incorporated is famous and whatnot, so if it turns out there's absolutely nothing, they get great publicity. And if something happens to them, they'll just say, well, it was a mistake. These guys weren't trained well enough. They have a good insurance policy. So as far as super space is concerned... It's a, you know, maybe not a win-win, but a good compromising solution. And then if it turns out there's something really bad, then they'll send in the professionals. But they don't want to send the folks up there on their own. They want to send a grizzled mercenary. Like I said, the crew's got to have its diversified people. This grizzled mercenary, if we're talking about the early 2000s, has to be somebody, you know... Who's recognizable? This is going to be a big money drop. And that's right, coming off his Academy Award win and nomination the following year, the early 2000s, we have Russell Crowe coming in. Russell Crowe is going to take a paycheck for this one to play the grizzled mercenary who gets to go with Mystery Incorporated up to space. We're also going to throw in a doctor, and we're going to throw in a pilot slash captain of the mission. Because, you know, Fred Jones knows how to drive the mystery machine, but you got to have a, you know, somebody who knows how to fly a spaceship. I'm sure there's all sorts of bells and whistles to, you know, make the mystery machine unique, but a spaceship you need someone who knows what they're doing. So, just to tap in this further because I want him in this. I love him so much. We're going to make Jason Isaacs be the captain here. Uh, you know, he's going to take a break from filming Harry Potter and put him there just to continue to to got to, to, to tie together this whole thing and you know fans of event horizon will be like hold on a moment jason isaacs is in this wait a minute he was in that other spooky space film could this be a spooky space film i don't know and then the medical doctor going along will be uh we'll say it's a angelina jolie how about that early 2000s angelina jolie not quite you know peak fame but you know daughter of john voight she's on up and coming in terms of the respectfulness of this career so all of a sudden You've got that original cast with these three characters. They go to the space station. There's no sign of anybody there. It's kind of spooky. What happened to the crew? No sign of a struggle. No sign of blood. Blunt trauma. It's going to take 35 minutes before they hit the first scary thing. 
which is they're going to turn a corner and they're going to find out that Russell Crowe's dead. Some brutalized way. I mean like slit throat, missing an arm. First sign of any violence. And here you thought, you know, wow, they spent a lot of money to get Russell Crowe in this film and he's dead. Nobody is safe. Anything can happen. And then it's just spinning out of control there. We're talking it's going to be violent. The lights are going to turn out. The lights will... For a second, they'll turn back on, and you'll briefly see one of the crew in a zombified state. Quick, lights go off, back on, the crew member's gone. What is causing all this? The members of the Mystery Machine and Mystery Incorporated and their new crew members are really getting at each other's throat. Maybe there's a little bit of hint of romance between Angelina Jolie's doctor and Shaggy. And you know what? I think this film is going to take... A step so far to even kill off one of the Mystery Incorporated members just to really show that anybody could be on the chopping block. Maybe it'll be Fred. There's going to be elements of science in it, elements of jump scares, that grotesqueness we were kind of talking about in Alien. Maybe there were some experiments going on. You know, we'll get the writers to hash out the details. But in the end, you're going to find out the whole reason this was caused is because old man Sanderson wanted to cash in his insurance check for the amusement park he was opening on the moon. And it was all just a ruse. Just to remind us that this is a Scooby-Doo film, first and foremost. Maybe that sounds scary. Maybe that sounds weird. Super Space has to get back involved somewhere, yeah, you know, in the storyline. Or maybe not. That's what's great about these films. Like, they're plot-wise, they don't have to be that good. They just have to touch upon themes that people find frightening and that will get people leaping out of their seats. So... Let me know what you think. This is probably going to be the one and only time I talk about the horror genre on this show. So thank you for lending me your ears. And if you're someone who's way more plugged in with this stuff and you were thinking, wait a minute, you were talking about space horror between 1995 and 2005 and you only mentioned those three films. What about X, Y, and Z? Please call me out on it. Send me your thoughts. If you want to send your recording, I'll put it in the next episode. Slip it there on the end to be like, yep, you just put me on notice. But that's okay. That's what we're all about. I'm not an expert. To those of you who are experts, you're welcome on here anytime. So, per usual, thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe wherever it is you're listening to this podcast. Follow me on Twitter. You can follow the show on Instagram. And per usual, I'll catch you all around the corner.